0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzat. That's Daft Punk's dance chart-topping hit, Around the World, from 1997. Not coincidentally, that's when James Harmon was tapped by President Clinton to head the U.S. Export-Import Bank. It was no sinecure. With emerging markets melting down left and right, Harmon flew in and out of 72 countries and became the administration's de facto point man on the Asian economic crisis. When he left the government, he launched the Caravel Fund to invest in developing economies like Peru, Bangladesh, Ghana, and the Philippines. Caravel, which started with a million dollars in 2004, now manages $800 million in companies across 30 emerging and frontier markets. He knows a thing or two about China and its ripple effects across the world. Hold that thought. Full disclosure. We'll be right back. Local broadcast to full disclosure made possible by Elwood Thompson's, aspiring to feed the heart and soul of our community through a strong commitment to local and organic food. Elwood Thompson's located in Richmond's Carytown. Joining us from NPR studios in New York City is James Harmon, head of the Caravel Fund in New York City. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. And Katie Chi, a senior analyst who focuses on Greater China for Caravelle, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: James, I want to get at kind of comparisons today. You, you have some provocative stories out there. There was a fund manager a couple of weeks ago who said this could be China's 1929. Others are saying it could be like uh, 1989 for Japan, a high watermark of a, of a centrally managed asset bubble. Are there any neat comparisons? And maybe you want to throw in 1997, where you where you really came of age in emerging markets. Uh, well,
2: 1997 in July, the Thai bought, um collapsed, and that was the triggering event for the Asian crisis. Um, Very serious crisis, but it didn't have the so-called crash implications in the United States that, of course, we saw yesterday. So, there are some similarities, but I think probably there are greater similarities to the 2011 uh, markets and economic conditions. Having said that, um, we always see some common aspect to it usually most uh, crashes and most economic events relate to too much borrowing and and you might say the amount of debt that china has today clearly is a factor in what's happening there Uh, but there are a lot of differences also between today and 1997 and even difference between uh, today and 2011. on a trading basis it reminds us a little bit of 2011 Uh, but I think for for most of us who have lived through numbers of crashes over a long lifetime, we all know the market recovers. So... For those listeners who think this is the end of the world, it's not. Uh, there, there could be some differences that do affect certain countries, uh, but the markets will recover, and it's a question of when they recover and what takes place to get them to recover.
0: Now, Jim, true or false? And I, I, I mean, I'm not. I know I'm not offending you because you get this from tough-minded investment committee managers and the people in the pension funds you meet with. The broad developing economy scenario where you see millions of people coming out of uh, poverty and joining the middle class and wanting meat and wanting cars and electronics is only as good as China's economy. True or false?
2: No, I, I, I don't think it's true.
0: Uh, I think that China's I mean, After, economy, after all, what, where would Peru be uh, in terms of selling copper? Where would uh, the cocoa market be in sub-Saharan Africa without China as that bidder of size? I mean, that's been the knock on uh, the emerging market miracle of the last 10, 15 years, that really it's just a secondary play on China.
2: Well... China's economy has been very successful. It has grown to represent today 15 percent, one five of, of the global GDP versus the United States, 25 percent of the global GDP. So obviously it's a very important factor um, in, in the growth of the global economy over the past and also hopefully in the future. But it's, it's not. there are a number of countries that are not as dependent as other countries may be. So you have to look at individual emerging market countries. Um, if China slows to a rate of uh, 4%, for example, is that going to have a major impact on the United States? I'd say no. Uh, I don't think so. I don't think it will have a major impact in a number of countries. Um, so I, but it is a factor, and everybody follows it, and that's why the markets shake when the Chinese government does one thing or other.
0: Hmm. Katie, I want to get a sense for uh, China and uh, maybe the multiplier effect, the ripple effect, the echo chamber effect of commodities. Um, as you know, another knock on the emerging market story is that it's only as good as the key commodity. You know, feast or famine, whatever the country depends on as as the key mover. Uh, of its exports, and if China is not buying it uh, voraciously and acquisitively, again, you talk about oil, you'll talk about copper, you talk about uh, raw materials for steel, which, you know, and, and cement, of which China, you know, there was a great stat that went around in five years, consumed more than the United States did in the entire 20th century. Mm-hmm. Is it? Yes. Is it? Is it true? And again, I mean, we're going to get into these meaning of life issues, because where is that money coming from? That money is being generated uh, centrally uh, Again, is 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 there an echo chamber, China, commodities, emerging markets, hence they're all purely correlated and it's it's not the great story that it's supposed to be?
1: Well, I, I have to say it's a little bit of a yes and no. I mean, no large country like China can grow continuously um, over 10% year after year after years. Um, but China still have, if you really actually go into China, um, not going to Beijing, Shanghai, the major city, you go to very rural area. There's still roads need to be built. There's still water treatment need to be built. There's still quite a decent amount of a uh, um, transit or metro station need to be built. So there there are still infrastructure, um, good infrastructure need to be built, not being wasted. Um, for the past uh, 15, 20 years or so, China went through a major um, overcapacity situation mm-hmm. in quite a decent amount of different industrial and sectors, but. There's still very basic infrastructures that need to be built, extended into rural area. So, um, but Katie, going again, forward, that's, that's
0: just central planning. It's not like are you are you impressed in your research that there's actually private demand or private willingness to pay? I take something like the Pudong bullet train. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. if the government spends an enormous amount, I mean, it'll take the United States 50 years to build high-speed rail on on one stretch of the Northeast Corridor. The Chinese, you know, they they have eminent domain. They they get stuff done. Um, and they yes. marshal the resources and the manpower. But again, is that because there are people clamoring to pay the high price of a train ticket or conversely, people who will pay tolls on the highway? Or is it because the government can just print money left and right?
1: Well, the one thing to keep in mind, though, China still have more than three trillions reserved. That um, one major thing is the um, people in China, especially um, just normal people in China, are not leveraged at all. Um, the big chunk of their personal wealth is sit in the bank, sitting with fairly low deposit rate. Um, they actually just uh, did a um, reserve ratio and interest rate cut last, um, this morning, this 6.20. Morning. This morning, um, the, the deposit, one-year deposit rate is 1.75%. So that is still quite low um, that the, uh, um, So for that reason, the Chinese people, the Chinese do have cash. They're just sitting in the bank for really getting not too much of a a return. So for that reason, um, you know, you can't say everything is just directed uh, by the um, central bank and printing cash. There are quite a decent amount of uh, uh, wealth that need to seeking for returns.
0: Katie, what do you think about the government? there exhorting people and government-linked institutions to invest in uh, the local market there, the stock market. You don't see really anything like that in the United States, but there must be something more to it over there that um, kind of the, the, the individual punter mentality is tied to domestic spending. I don't quite understand it.
1: Uh, well, Chinese Asia market is, is uh, definitely a very unique market um, that um, is not very rational. It's actually not yet very matured. Um, the A lot of the, uh, especially small and medium sized uh, company, they treat um, getting listed as exit strategy. Uh, they don't necessarily treat the minority shareholder very well. Just It's a w- one way for them to actually squeeze more cash. So uh, for that reason, the, the entire um, Asia equity market definitely needs to be. Um, there's a lot of lesson they need to be learned. Um, the government, of course, has a major hand in the market since big chunk of the Asia index, Shanghai index, is financial related. Mm. And the as we all know, all the banks are majorly owned by the government. Um, so for that reason, the index is one thing, and the um, the actual um, Retail investor investing in a lot of mid-small cap um, um, is another thing. So it's a, it's a very it's it's a very early into the in the uh, Asia equity market at this point. Mm.
0: Jim Harman, uh, uh, Caravelle does not invest in China proper or Hong Kong, does it? No. Not, it, not our flagship. Is there a reason why I mean, you, you, you avoid this, or it came out in your, in your mandate uh, when you first introduced yourself to investors, that we're not going to go into the, the main pillars? You, you recall the, the BRIC appellation, Brazil, Russia, India, China. Uh, Goldman Sachs came out and said they were going to be the big movers in emerging markets last decade, and for the most part that happened. But why do you, why do you
2: avoid those? these markets that we've gone into which tended to be the non-brick markets obviously were not as well known as as among investors and offered uh, opportunities to to um, find attractive investments at very low valuations uh, they were s- somewhat less efficient markets uh, and therefore uh, we we were probably as knowledgeable as most anybody was on these countries. Part of that came about from my background at, in the government, but it followed as we specialized in countries from Asia to Latin America to Sub-Saharan Africa. So we the world didn't need another uh, fund to invest in BRICs at that time. So we could focus on all these non-BRICs. Countries which represented a very significant part of, of the global population, probably as much as a third of the global population was in the non bricked areas, a little bit more than that even. Hmm. Uh, and yet, as a percentage of GDP, it was a very small percentage. It just wasn't followed, and it gave us an opportunity to bring something new to the investors. Jim, I always wanted to ask
0: you and, and, and before that, you were at uh, Schroeder's Bank, and uh, you, know, you, you might recall Schroeder Wertheim, which was then absorbed by Citigroup. And uh, well into the well into the '70s, in the early '70s, you were working on Wall Street, where you could take for granted a certain modicum of transparency and legitimacy to financial reporting. Uh, tell us about um, your perspective on China, both as a government official going in there and as as someone who looks at books um, and 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 analyzes investments. How do you you look at this beast? On the one hand, as Katie mentioned, there is this enormous surplus of uh, foreign currency reserves. It's a manufacturing machine. On the other hand, everything is so centrally controlled. I mean, you can't even come out and criticize the stock market. You see vast censorship. You see the government trying to throw uh, hundreds of millions of dollars at the stock market problem, not in just the central bank way, but to prop up the stock market. You have to wonder, you know, where the buck stops or who's
2: controlling what. Most of us have some reservations maybe even criticism, of the level of Chinese engagement in the stock market. Anything that distorts the market is a bit dangerous and could could be one of the factors that caused a, a great deal of uneasiness about the Chinese market. Uh, but coming back to your question, uh, which you go back as far as the 1970s, at that time I often tell people that my partners at Wertheim thought that the work we were doing in Europe, we were, we were assisting the Italian state-owned companies in listing in the New York Stock Exchange and raising capital. Uh, My partners considered Italy as the developing world Mm -hmm. at that time, very few uh, people in the financial community spent time in China or any parts of of, uh, of the so-called emerging markets back in the 70s and 80s. In fact, really in the 90s, when uh, when I got to the Exim Bank, most of these countries were not visited by uh, uh, the U.S. A little bit in the London, but not a large amount uh, of the developing world. China was always considered an extraordinary case, a very large country that could make a difference someday. But it wasn't until 10 years ago, maybe, where people started to realize that China was going to play a major role in the growth of the uh, of, of the whole global economy. Uh, then people started to realize what the significance was about their purchase of commodities, and an, an analyst would be increasingly going to China, and Chinese were also increasingly coming to the West. (laughs) That's really- Is it amazing?
0: The irony seems to be lost on a lot of people. Yes, it is the world's second largest economy, but uh, Chairman Mao- be rolling around is it in his mausoleum to see that the communist government the biggest communist government in the world is intervening to protect the stock market so that people don't riot i mean how does that happen you know this is you see weird things happening in your world jim like you know i believe you know in vietnam the, the the exchange is called the ho chi minh city stock market i mean ho chi minh and a stock market you know beijing shanghai and a stock market these things are not supposed to go hand in hand
2: you know, Robin, the world has changed and it continues to change at a very rapid pace. So the, 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 the world that you know so well, the telecommunications world and communications it, it, it is so significant. So information flows so quickly. So just look at yesterday, what, what everybody learned about instantly all over the world, calls were coming in from from Rwanda to Peru, to uh, Beijing, uh, people wanted to know what was happening in the United States. So, if you looked at my call list, it was it, it was shocking uh, to see how many people were following instantly. They had they had time as fast as we had. And that's been a, been a factor, um, but I I do think that the Chinese, uh, yes still have a number of things that they could do better relative to their capital markets, relative to their economy. But they have come a ways. It's more transparent than people now give them credit for, certainly more transparent than they were 10 or 15 or five years ago. Um, While no one knows exactly what the rate of growth is, it could be 4% or 55 or 6% even, they do know a lot more. So progress is being made in that area in China. Slight setback when they start interfering with the equity markets, as they did, but I, I, I suspect when people write the book on this period or on this market now, uh, there'll be some criticism of that and what role that might have played.
0: Well, Katie, what are you modeling as a quote-unquote hard landing in China? Is it going from you know high single-digit to low double-digit growth to you know 3% a year growth, 4% a year growth? Is there any scenario? You said that an economy cannot Continue to grow at 9, 10% ad infinitum. But uh, can this economy contract? Is that even conceivable? Is that that even that kind of apocalyptic scenario even on the table for Beijing?
1: Uh, No, I don't don't think so. Um, One thing um, about this soft and hot lending, um, you know, it's a really nice turn. But in China and also in my model, what I truly believe that what will cause a true hot lending will actually also impact the um, political situation will be a major unemployment rate. If we starting to see unemployment rates starting to raise, especially a lot of those uh, um, um, migrant workers starting to actually find no job and just sitting in the street and we see some sort of a social unrest that's the time Beijing will really take notice and start to do a lot of stuff. So far at this point, the Chinese employment rate is actually pretty good. Um, There is a little bit of shift from manufacturer-related jobs to service-related. So China is trying to do what a lot of other developed market is doing, is trying to shift from massive manufacturing-related or infrastructure bill into more service consumption-related economy. It's going to take a lot of time. It's going to have some pain. uh, But China is trying very hard to do that. And I want to unpack
0: that uh, question. Is it true or false? You kind of hear uh, from people on the street who have enough intelligence about China to to muster together maybe cocktail party-level conversation that... The uh, agreement coming out of the Tiananmen Massacre in 1989 was the government implicitly said to people, you know, we're giving you two routes. Uh, you can, you can you go the political route and you can risk imprisonment or censure or some of these other things that led to the disaster that we saw in 1989, or we can give you more economic freedoms. You can um, have capital formation, you can own land, you can own private property, you can profit. Um, And that agreement has kind of been implicitly kept now for 26 years. And is it a failure of that agreement on the government's part when they cannot bring people out of the countryside and keep them employed? Um, I know it's a loaded question, but people seem to reduce it down to this. if The government is imperiled and people will riot in the streets if growth does not continue
1: it's a very tough question um in terms of growth, uh, are we talking about GDP headline growth? Or are we talking about employment um, constant employment keeping
0: and- yeah keeping the machine running and I would imagine ostensibly it's manufacturing and bringing people from the country to these mega you know these enormous cities um that uh, put them to work and that social compact where then money can be repatriated back to uh, back to the countryside you build a consumer class uh, people start to crave things in their in their um uh, flats and apartments, is that is that all kind of overrated?
1: Um, no, actually, current, up to this point, the Chinese uh, salary growth is still, uh, urban area a little bit lower, it's uh, high single-digit, um, some point probably mid-single-digit, but still um, you know, quite good. And in the rural area, actually some selective area is even double-digit of salary growth. So, so far, the uh, um, that's part of the reason um, the cost of doing business in China is definitely continue to rise. And government also is trying to put in some sort of safety net, increase a little bit of healthcare-related, uh, increasing some sort of education funding. Uh, but net-net, so again, trying to promote consumption. So you, if you build some sort of um, floor, and then most of the people will go out and continue to expect to actually have some sort of salary growth. And then people will go out and but buy stuff. But you do stuff. see
0: you do see a market difference between consumption and speculation. I mean, speculation is in property markets uh, where rates are brought down again, and the government is out there, not just implicit implying that you should buy stocks and property, but exhorting people to buy it. Um, does that does that lead to real economic activity, and does that get China any step closer to having a true consumer class, i.e., one that can stand on its own legs as opposed to just being you know living and dying by exports?
1: Uh, China, um, up to this point, even though they try very hard to smooth it, um, as I say, reform will take time. This uh, shift from manufacturing or infrastructure built to consumption is going to take um, longer than um, most people believe. Because again, you know, Chinese have this culture of thousands of years just uh, basically trying to save, not to uh, spend um, so there's quite a bit of uh, education need to, to tell people. Look, as long as you got this uh, bottom line safety net, you should think about spending more instead of just putting everything under your mattress. But go back to um, the the um, Chinese in general is uh, kind of a boom and doom cycle. They've been going through this big cycle for quite a few times. Um, the that's part of the reason why we can see the um, almost every sector you see over capacity situation, you have this hoarding kind of uh, impact. Uh, people like to jump into things uh, continue to go up. You can see that found the property market. You can also see that from the equity market. When you have an equity market, more than 90% of the investor are just retail mom and pop investor. And you know that um, it's quite an impact from just this, uh, this anticipation no. of I can double my money within a day or two. Um, the Chinese government know that. They know that um, we need to squeeze out this bubble. We need to actually lower this, um, this margin loan. That's part of the reason why they started to do that in um, late May, early June. So that's, that's since we see a major correction in the Chinese Asia market. Mm. Um, and the, the hope is going forward, people are a little bit more rational instead of uh, treating equity market as a casino Um, You know, looking more into fundamental, you invest into more for long term, invest into solid company instead of just company with some sort of thing or um, a trade. So, I, I, I do believe that Beijing understand that, and but it, it would take a lot of time for them to really smooth that out.
0: Full disclosure, we are talking to the uh, super accomplished uh, emerging and frontier investors at the Caravel Fund, uh, Chairman James Harmon, who was with the Export-Import Bank under the Clinton administration, and Katie Chi, a senior analyst who focuses on greater China and uh, knows several things also about Brazil and India and um, uh, some of the BRIC players. Uh, Jim, I want to step back for a minute and pose the uh, the mercenary question, you know, as the fat american isn't it isn't it conceivably good for America when China slows down hard? I mean, Work work that out for me. It, everything seems to be hardwired. Maybe their treasury purchases would be slowed down. But as we see in the commodities market, even a uh, you know a couple of ticks out of percentage points of expected growth in China leads to a pummeling of of uh, crude oil prices, a pummeling of food prices. Uh, that uh, you know, with the United States growing by comparison, uh, this could actually take the foot off some of the inflationary pressures that we were feeling when China was growing at full tilt, when Brazil was growing at full tilt, and everybody was competing for scarce assets with the United States.
2: Uh, So, uh, there are certainly some positives, but there are many negatives to China slowing down. Yeah, walk walk me through that. So China slows down. It has a significant impact on all of Asia. It has an impact on Europe. It has an impact on Latin America. So all all the countries that are now exporting to China will do a lot less business. It will affect their economies, whether you're in Peru or in Colombia or whether you're in Europe or whether you're in even sub-Saharan Africa. So anybody who says – that a slowdown in China doesn't have an impact on the rest of the world, that would that would be incorrect. Uh, very significant impact. I think from the US point of view, we would rather see China maintain its growth rate than have a decline, even if there are some slight benefits to us uh, in, in terms of the lower well, Jim, prices on Jim, what are, what are the slight
0: benefits? Again, I'm, I'm not playing dumb, but you get this from clients a lot. What are we exporting to China? You knew this intimately at the XM Bank. I mean, you get the impression that this is a real lopsided relationship, that they're currency manipulators. A lot of this was precipitated by them coming out and taking down the yuan uh, by by 3% um, in, in a currency that is already unanimously kind of looked at as being artificially weak. Um, They kind of live and die by cheap
2: exports. Uh, What are we exporting to them? It's not so much what we're exporting to them. It's what all of our customers are exporting to them. So we do a lot of business, obviously, in Europe. We do a lot of business in Canada. Our biggest export markets uh, in terms of individual countries, certainly are Canada and Mexico, both countries are selling products to China. So when China slows down, they are impacted, and that impacts indirectly the United States. That has been true for a long time. So it could be that direct exports, which I don't have the exact number in front of me now, may be modest comp- for the U.S. export. We, we probably export uh, something in, in, in close to $2.2, 2300000000000 trillion a year. China represents a small piece of that. But that would be misleading to look at that without looking at the impact of a China slowdown would be on all of our customers, all U.S. customers.
0: But there used to be a time when China wasn't that much of a consideration uh, to the United States. You could look look at yourself as more of an island. The Fed could do what it wanted to do here. You could take for granted that oil was going to travel in a band from you know $12 a barrel to $30 a barrel and back and forth and self-correct. Um, we, we have really fundamentally seen a shift since China came into the World Trade Organization. What was it, in 2001? Uh, yes. Um, but, so but, there's no way to kind of decouple from that? I mean, it, my question is, do, they, do they, are we impossibly all connected
2: right now? And so we can't, yes. we, we, we can't well, afford to look away from that? Yes. I'll give you a specific numbers. In the early 1970s, the sum of the U.S. exports and imports together represented less than 10% of our GDP, less than 10%. Today, the sum of our exports and imports are more than 30%, more than 30% of our GDP. So, the U.S., for those listeners who don't follow it closely, the U.S. is much more integrated with the global economy now. It has a significant impact on our our economy and our employment and all aspects of, of our life. Um, so, to... to to say that we're going to go back, so to speak, to a time when we did, we're not that integrated is unrealistic. It's not going to happen. Uh, so China plays an important role, as I said earlier. China represents 15% of the global GDP compared to the U.S., 25%. And it's much more than most of the countries that we're selling to, which represent 1%, 2%, 3 4%. So when China slows, that has an impact on everybody. That has an impact on the United States indirectly because of our customer base. I see. Now,
0: how much of how much of this
2: is you know to to be in the investment management business?
0: And you guys learn this, and you have to deal with some major drawdowns in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. With a lot of clients saying, "This is it. I've had it. This is the big one. It's different. I can't deal with a fifty percent plus down year." Um, in emerging markets, you look back at the history of modern emerging market investing, and a lot of it has changed so much. You talk about the the, the many peculiar countries you deal with are now ETF represented, and that would have been unthinkable just two or three years ago. That there's a single exchange traded fund that lets you buy, you know, Colombia or a uh, country on the frontier or the uh, northeast North Africa. Um, there are the point being is that these are not. Um, the, these are internationally subscribed to stories now. People can throw lots of money into emerging markets, they can pull money out of emerging markets, and it creates all sorts of whiplashing things like we saw yesterday uh, with the Dow down a thousand points. Um, is there a part of you that just steps back from this and say, you know what, we saw it before. I actually I actually like opportunities like this because we have a watch list of companies and many great stories are getting thrown out with the with the broader China panic?
2: Yes, yeah, it certainly is. So, I mean, there's always mixed feelings, most of us have, uh, certainly in the, in the United States, have our assets based in the United States. We are beneficiaries of a stronger dollar, but and we have beneficiaries of of, of some U.S. portfolio that we have. So when the market sells off, like yesterday, 10% or whatever, uh, in in the U.S. market, and a number of equities ended up being off maybe 3%, but at one point, it was a, f- a frightening number in the morning, and that does concern us, even if our Principal business at Caravel is investing around the world, so there are mixed feelings that you have. Uh, volatility creates opportunity. That is certainly true. And for active investors like ourselves, we we will probably over a long period of time outperform indexes because we can take advantage of volatility, and we are doing it now. So we had a, a morning meeting this early this morning with uh, our partners who are spread around the world right now, um, and we were discussing what, what are we buying uh, in different markets, and clearly we have started to nibble away, as we say, buy here and there in different countries, because the market prices were driven down to a level that it's become attractive. So where you've been following these countries and companies for a long period of time, we have a pretty good fix on what we want to buy. So it is an opportunity. But at the same time, too much volatility will create such uncertainty in the world. And in, in the next few weeks, there will be more stories about who got hurt the most, what funds, and some stories about ETFs. And these stories that they evolve. The good is that I hope it leads to reforms. In, in in the countries that we're investing in and reforms in China too. The bad is that these stories frighten investors and that's probably something we we have to live with. Mm. Insecurity about the world and what's taking place, of course, follows the kind of volatility we had yesterday, extraordinary volatility. Right. I also do wonder, and you get this from clients a lot, and you and I spoke about this, is if we look
0: back to the inception of your fund in, in 2004, um, the majority of the years... From, you know, between now and then have been accompanied by emergency low interest rate policy out of the Federal Reserve and echoed by record low rates across the globe. Um, How much of this broader emerging markets and frontier markets story? Again, you know the frontier we see we've seen enormous beneficiaries in Ghana, in Kenya, Mozambique has come online. um, uh, You know, Colombia since two thousand and two has had an unbelievable renaissance. How much of that is fed by um, increased risk taking appetites when um, money costs nothing, especially in the United States?
2: I think it's definitely somewhat uh, the growth of these countries. However, the growth that you said earlier of the middle class technology flows into these countries. Um, these are driving their economies. But clearly, um, our initiation of almost an unrealistic period of low interest rate uh, was a factor and and probably contributes to the kind of volatility we're having now. We knew for the last five years, that when the day came that our interest rates would start to move up after such seven years of or, or longer of, of low interest rates, that this would create very significant volatility. We didn't know where or how or what would trigger it. Uh, now we're seeing it, uh, but this is this is n- not so healthy, um, and so it has concerned most of us th- that that we've had this unrealistic period uh, and. Investors were driven to, to search for yield all over the world. They bought uh, emerging market debt when maybe they didn't know as much as they should have known about that. So s- some uninformed investors, maybe many from around the world, were desperate for yield, and that's because rates were so, so low. So we did have a bubble. There's no question about that, it, created b- by the very low interest rates, and, and all of us look forward to the days when interest rates are more normal. How are we going to do take-
0: that? You saw, you saw, uh, Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary under Clinton, come out and, and uh, I think he did a CNBC interview saying, and a, an op-ed piece saying that Janet Yellen, the Fed Chair, should not increase rates. This is not the time to do it. On the one hand, you have every bit of evidence: unemployment is back down to more tolerable levels. We're closer to full employment. The asset markets in the United States has been gangbusters. After all, we've gone more than 1,000 days without a mere 10% correction until this week, the Fed seems to have every justification to start normalizing rates. Um, And it's been put off several, several, several times. Uh, Now, you seem to hear a lot of of whispers across the street, and especially on emerging market desks, please, please don't do this. Give us some forbearance.
2: So, firstly, uh, in full disclosure, (laughs) quotes, um, uh, Larry Summers was uh, on our advisory board uh, and The early years uh, and is a good friend and who I worked closely with when I was in the administration and I have enormous respect for him. Uh, I differ a little bit on this last issue. Uh, I I have felt that once we made the move, uh, the Fed move, let's say 25 basis points if it did in September, that that would be a triggering event for some confidence. Uh, I felt the banks in the United States would do a bit better as interest rates start to move up, um, which will help us, and as they do better, they'll lend more money. So I think it's actually good for our economy. I think it's good for the world economy also. Now, it's only natural that when you see the kind of volatility yesterday, and someone asks you, wow, now you can increase rates, someone would say, well, maybe it's better for us to be a bit cautious and wait another three months or six months, I I would, if, if I were voting, I would vote to increase interest rates in September rather than December, and I think there will be a surprise. Markets will respond positively.
0: Uh, Katie Chi, yes, I want to get a sense, please, for uh, some of the tools in uh, Beijing's arsenal uh, to be able to deal with this. One, the market meltdown we see that. The, the 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 Shenzhen Composite and the Shanghai Stock Exchange—they've fallen under the levels where the government came in and intervened initially. What else can they do? I mean, at its very base level, you want to keep people employed. But to the extent that they've already waited in, you know, across the moral hazard of encouraging speculation in equities, in property, um, what what can they do? I mean, they do have a lot of money. You said three trillion dollars of reserves, but you also don't want to head down the route where. Japan completely ended up in debt in an ill-starred effort to kind of rescue its economy after its asset collapse.
1: Um, actually, um, there's a few things Beijing can do. Um, well, first of all, the um, equity market, in turn of even though 90 plus percent is uh, um, uh, basically um, participate by retail investors, that's also only less than 10 percent of the household. Um, wealth. And about 40% of the household wealth tied into uh, property markets, so less than 10%. Um, Beijing actually realized that tossing billions of dollars trying to support market and uh, um, just forced company can only buy, cannot sell, that didn't work. And not only it, it's a it's really a waste of time, waste of money. Um, they finally realized that's not a way to actually mm. stimulate the economy. So they did the right thing finally um, this morning by cutting interest rate. The one-year benchmark rate, is, uh, lending rate, is 4.75%, um, I guess, after they cut, the 25% basis cut. Um, the uh, As I said, the deposit rate is one75 So there's still um, room for Chinese government or PBOC to cut rates. Um, the Another thing they can do is also this reserve ratio. Chinese reserve ratio um, after 50 basis point cut, it's still 18.5%. That's still very, very high on um, a global standard. So they definitely still have plenty of room to ease. That's for the military policy that they can do. And internal fiscal stimulus policy that going forward, what they should do, and hopefully they will do, is to actually be a little bit more target. Um, they can actually come up with fiscal stimulus policy to just target very in, um, into the sector that they really truly will need it for the next fifty, hundred years, rather than just continue building. Um, bridges to nowhere. Building
0: bridges to nowhere. And and, and seize that thought for a minute. Isn't it just unnatural to keep growing and growing and growing? You have to have creative destruction. You have to have corrections. You have to have credit bubbles and you have to have periods of um, opportunistic, you know, vulture buying and capital formation coming back. How long can the government just keep propping this up? I think that's the big concern when Uh, you know, uh, a pair of cold eyes in the West looks at this situation is, yes, this is an enormous juggernaut. It's the fastest growing economy in recent history. Millions taken out of unemployment, unbelievable amounts of uh, foreign exchange reserves. But how long can you keep something like this going? Uh, It almost defies physics.
1: Uh, That's a very good question. Uh, But as I said before, they are not just building bridges to nowhere. There's still plenty of very important infrastructure that they really should concentrate on. But Katie, what if they
0: become I mean, what if they blow through cash? What if they blow through reserves and then they have to take on debt like a Japan or an Italy? You look at these scenarios, and Jim talks about Italy being an emerging market back in the day. It's kinda gone, you know, full circle both of these into no growth situations where you have an indebted, aging population. I mean, is there any danger of that kind of in your outlier scenario when you model China?
1: I guess one major thing is um, Chinese consumer or Chinese people are not indebted. They really are not leveraged at all. Even for the property sector, they are really not very leveraged. Uh, granted, there's a little bit of an inventory in the second and third tier city. But overall, the regular Chinese people are not very leveraged. Mm. So that's quite important. Um, in addition to their um, trillions of uh, uh, reserved. Um, Chinese government actually is buying time to um, do s- economics um, and social reform to hopefully to actually push them into the next stage. Um, and in the meantime, for their fiscal policy that they need to build and they will build, um, definitely things that uh, people will need for the longer term. Um, as I said before, they still need subway they still have urbanization they need to do. Um, they definitely need a lot of environmental-related water treatment. Um, you know, so there, there's still um, things for China to, to build that actually will benefit in the really long term.
0: Mm. I want to shift gears a bit uh, back to oil, because, uh, Jim, as you know, oil carries a certain self-fulfilling prophecy with it. Um, when you see the velocity of the change of the price of oil, Uh, the the, the velocity is so fast, and you see that formerly $50 is the floor, $40 is the floor, $30 is the floor. It could force issues such as a derailment of what's left of the Venezuelan economy, or uh, Brazil, or you could see Iran, which I'd like to to kind of grill you about, uh, suddenly be distressed. If all of these economies have a certain minimum barrel price assumption to make their obligations and their debt payments and their domestic spending, Can you see that reverb maybe in a kind of a secondary uh, ripple effect from China to take down other economies that are dependent on oil especially?
2: Uh, I care more about the amplitude than I do the velocity. In other words, to move down from 102 or 108 down to 30-odd today, this is an extraordinary move in um, whatever it is, uh, less than a year period of time. So. That, that is going to cause, of course, major changes. And there are some countries that are beneficiaries of that, including the United States, and some countries that are obviously a major impact the ex- exporters, whether it be Nigeria or Venezuela or Iraq. Uh, so, Are we worried about for- a default out of Venezuela or Nigeria
0: in particular? Is that something that, that keeps you guys up systemically?
2: Not Venezuela because we don't invest in Venezuela. In Nigeria we know well and we follow. But by it and, extension,
0: how would Venezuela further harm Brazil or these other countries in its periphery that may have counterparty risk? I mean, is, is there anything resembling anything like a, a systemic contagion thing that
2: could emanate from these two countries? Uh, there's always a risk of that, but I think the le- if you look at the at the new leadership that has come about in terms of the emerging world, the developing countries, there's been some major new changes in terms of leadership, and so we're kind of cautiously hopeful that there will be a ch- there will be good leadership in Venezuela eventually. Certainly, there is new, very good leadership in Mexico, new, very good leadership in Nigeria, new, very good leadership in in India and so forth and so on. So the overall growth of the middle class is good, but in fact, the leadership in most of the countries we're investing in has improved. And the number of reforms that have taken place in these countries is very significant. So they will be able, they and and their improved balance sheets will be able to sustain volatility that'll come about when oil drops as much as it does. But I am absolutely certain that you and I will be talking sometime in the next year maybe less, uh, where oil price will be significantly higher than where it is now. Mm. I'm going to hold you to that. Uh, (laughs) You're going to see recovery.
0: Talk to me about Iran. Uh, You've been a proponent of this uh, grand bargain, this grand deal that the Obama administration very controversially signed with Iran, AIPAC is opposing it. Um, you do have a couple of of senators out there in the Democratic Party, namely Chuck Schumer and Bob Menendez of New Jersey, who've come out maybe a little belatedly, uh, too late to kind of scuttle or scupper the deal. Uh, you think it's a it's a it's a good deal and it's a net positive?
2: Yes, I, I have no question about it. I have read through there. I've listened to um, State Department people talk about it. And I've listened to the critics of that. Could we make a better deal? Anybody could say you could make a better deal. You could say that about every transaction that takes place. Is this better than not having a deal? No question about it. No question. This is an important step. I happen to fall into the some more optimistic step that if you open up Iran, that gradually more business will be done. It will become more engaged in the global economy from that there will be reforms that will take place so it is in many respects similar to what took place in china and, and, and reagan's uh, 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 uh the nixon's moves and reagan's moves in russia i i think on balance the things the united states did in those countries was were positive for the world and i think we will see the same thing in iran but this so is where you I'm get pushback
0: this is where you might get pushback from people a china let's say compared to the Tiananmen crackdown. Uh, in 1989, it's been far, it's been really emboldened. Uh, uh, capital punishment continues. Uh, you haven't seen as much of a moderation towards some amount of democracy or representative democracy as you would imagine with. 20 or 25 years of, of so much unalloyed capitalism. Um, and, and people are out there saying that if you give this kind of infusion to Iran and you concede that it is the Shiite firewall, the big economic power uh, surrounded by all of these Sunni vacuums, that it's going to become a China-like menace with a lot of money and a lot of financial
2: clout plumb in the middle of the Middle East. Well, I'm sure Katie has more comments on China, but I would say in my lifetime, I've seen significant changes as China has opened up. Its leadership is much more engaged than the rest of the world. It's it's all focused today on the environmental issues, and it will play a leadership role on sustainability in the world. Never would have happened years ago. Um, and they're, they are more transparent. You do get more information. Whatever you might be critical of, they have made significant progress. The human capital in China is exceptional, and the leadership is exceptional in, in my opinion. So I've seen the progress done. And so I think China is a good illustration of what hopefully could take place in Iran. What do you think, Katie?
1: Um
0: Iran. Inter- Iran has been pointed out by Goldman Sachs as being a next 11 economy. I mean, that was almost a footnote after the brick, the big brick coup. This was a victory lap that I think Goldman ran in 2007 or 2008, and then the entire economy went... The entire global economy went to to waste, uh, but they do see a lot of the attributes that you guys like in your target uh, markets. Iran has a very young population, one that that is enthusiastic about um, uh, you know the American dream, as it were, buying a house, buying a car, getting an iPod or iPad through the island of Kish, you know, it brings it in through the Emirates. Uh, uh, and, and and you might see it resemble a Turkey much more than it does some of these more wild East Middle East countries if you see some sort of normalization.
1: Well, well, first of all, um I can make little comments, but I'm not a political analyst, but the uh, internal China, China is not going to change overnight. Uh, we're not going to go from a one-party communist party all of a sudden turning to a democracy. That's just not going to happen right now. Um the but the current administration definitely have tried to be more open to some extent. And also we definitely have seen some um, some um, policy they're doing, for example the cracking down of corruption and then uh, there's a lot of environmental related issues that they are trying to target as well. So they they're moving slowly toward the right direction, but it's going to take some time. Um, the uh, current um, President Xi Jinping basically got on in power for the past uh, only a few years. So we're going to see probably for the next his next turn, we probably will see a lot more um, even policy to go to move China into more reform. And now the more immediately um, The most important thing for China at this point is to actually make sure the economy was stabilized. Um, So once they get that settled, and we probably will see a lot more political related reform coming up, but Mm. just not going to happen at the moment.
0: Now, Jim, in the few minutes that we have left, I want to kind of grill you on on the Export-Import Bank, your old old stomping grounds. uh, in the late 90s. Um, you've seen a tremendous amount of controversy in Congress over authorization. Um, uh, there's going to be a lapse, maybe, of of letting the Export-Import Bank continue with its mission. You've had huge corporations, huge multinationals like Boeing come out and say that you can't just disarm unilaterally of the United States and, and, and take down and not authorize uh, something that's so important to our exporters, so important to um, uh, players overseas who want to buy wares from our exporters, which after all, they hire Americans and they keep the jobs in the United States. What, what is your take on this? And to what extent have you been consulted by, by Congress?
2: I have been asked a number of some questions as I have briefed a number of the committees on other countries, uh, including Egypt and the work we're doing there. But um, I am... I, A a believer that the Export Credit Agency in the United States, the Exim Bank, plays a very important role in um, in our economy. And if we didn't have it, uh, there would not only be exports that would not get supported, uh, but other countries would step up uh, what they're doing, uh, and that would cause more competition for U.S. business community. And so, I have gotten more calls from the other export credit agencies all over uh, the world that I knew well from the years I was there, uh, asking me, was it really going to happen? They could hardly believe it. Of course, no other country is moving in that direction. The other countries, especially China... Uh, one story I always tell: When I was the Exim Bank, the Chinese came to see me. They were unhappy that we didn't support the Three Gorges Dam, and they asked if they could send some people to Exim Bank to learn more about what we were doing. At the time, they were supporting under Exim Bank oh, some number like one or two billion dollars. We were supporting twelve to fifteen billion dollars, and I said certainly we would do that. Then they asked me if they could. If they could second 40 odd people. Now, Exim Bank is an agency with 400 some people. That was like a shocker, and of course, we couldn't do that. But it, it reflects on the Chinese desire to learn more about how to do it and how to do it the right way. T- today, when Exim Bank is maybe supporting uh, between 20 and $25 billion in exports, uh, the Chinese are now uh, supporting a number which I don't have directly in front of me, which I believe is north of of, of 350 a billion um, dollars and, and that's probably underrating the number. So Chinese have moved very significantly in that direction. So for us to, as you said, unilaterally disarm is a very foolish thing. Mm. We could have reforms that would modernize the XM Bank and that's where if I had been advising uh, the the conservative side of the Congress, I would have said look at reforms to do that you're concerned about. Uh, we don't want to compete with the private sector we don't want to do other things so you should look for reforms don't close down the XM bank that's a foolish thing to do
0: Jim uh, finally i do want to ask is this just going to be looked at as a flash in the pan uh, when we look back at it is it something uh, very fleeting like the temper tantrum or concerns about uh, you know a double crash in 2010 and the flash crash uh, just just in a world with greater volatility especially after a period where we've taken so much quiet for granted what's your bet
2: First, um, as I said earlier, I think there will be some reviews of what took place. And I think we will – probably will see that the ETFs might have played a greater role here than most people expected. And so, there could be some uh, reforms coming here uh, relative to the ETF area. And there may be other things that we will learn when we look close at what took place in the trading patterns uh, yesterday. Um, And – that would be the first thing. So, good good may come out of it. Secondly, uh, the, the U.S. market has probably up over the last three years something close to 40% up until this decline of the last month. Um, and the emerging market, which has been down probably, at, certainly as of today, down something like 25% over the last three years. Uh, so, And you factor in the multiple of earnings. Our markets are close to, if not slightly greater than 20 times earnings. And uh, the developing world, emerging markets are close to 10 times earnings. So there was going to be an adjustment made. Uh, Maybe we didn't expect this kind of uh, rapid speed crash, but there was going to be an adjustment made. I do not think this goes away overnight. I think you will continue to see – um, U.S. market under some pressure, maybe a more uh, uh, sustainable, gradual basis, not the kind of fluctuation we've seen in the last few days, um, and you will gradually see the emerging markets improving. So the spread between the valuations in the developing world and the valuations in the United States is, is at an extreme level. It has not been that way at any time in the 11 years that we've been running this fund, uh, and probably for a very period of time. That is. Uh, multiples of 10 versus a multiple of 20, that's unusual. So that will change, and so it's not going – yesterday is not suddenly going back to where we were um, six months ago. I think there will be changes in evaluations that will take place over time, and there will be some good that came about as a result of the way the market acted yesterday.
0: And I'm so grateful. Uh to you and Katie for joining us on short notice. I know that the desk is crazy. I know that the calls are coming in left and right, but uh, it's a treat for our listeners to be able to, to kind of tap into your wisdom and experience on this. Uh, Katie Chi and James Harmon of the Caravel Fund, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Robin.
0: Full disclosure, listen to us on NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, WRIR. We're on Twitter and Facebook at Full D Radio. Our engineers in New York City at NPR, Manoli Wetherill. In Virginia, John Valdez, I'm Robin Farzad, back at you next week.